Well, let's get started again today looking at the book of Titus. And before we do, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time together. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is clear. It is good for us. It is uh, the life source that we lean on, both in our knowledge and understanding of You, but in our growth in godliness and in the things that You want us to be about. I pray for us today that You would give us understanding as we look into Your Scriptures and that You would bear these uh, qualifications we're going to look at for elders out in all of our lives because we want to be a people marked by these characteristics so I pray that you would guide me as I uh, teach and each of us as we sit under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We've been looking at the section, and I've titled this Establishing Elders. And so we began this last week. Um, but let's dive into it and just refresh ourselves where we are. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up where we left off and look at these character traits one by one. And I'll just be honest, some of them we're going to interact with uh, just a little bit different than it's been translated here because these are it's a list of of individual uh, words that character are to characterize or not to characterize an elder and so anytime you have a list like this um, from the original language it's going to be a word that there's just not a lot of usage um, sometimes uh, within the rest of scripture so the translation might vary a little bit, and so I'm going to try to take some time to to just help us to understand the nuances of these words. Um, and so, don't be too disturbed by that if it deviates just a little bit from the ESV. Uh, I'm not going to go outside the realm of what other translations have offered, so uh, be encouraged there. But we're going to look at two aspects of these character qualities. First of all, and this is in continuation again from uh, previously, we're going to look at five internal restraints of an elder, and I'll tell you why I I worded it like that, and then we're going to look at seven godly pursuits of an elder. The five internal restraints are all contained in verse 7, and those seven godly pursuits are in verses 8 through 9, mainly uh, verse 8, and then one final one in verse 9. So let's jump into this. The second half of verse 7 contains these this first list of five internal restraints. Now, this list is in keeping with the purpose statement of our salvation, which is over in, uh, this is not the only time this appears, but it's a, a well-defined purpose in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people. So talking about God's grace that uh, um, results in salvation. What does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we get this time period before Christ returns. We're anticipating His return. What are we to be doing in that time period? We're to be growing in these things. Um, We're to to be looking more and more like Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, he echoes it again, uh, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that's our purpose. The reason God has left us here, not only to, uh, well, it is to magnify his name. Uh, It is to make disciples. It is to evangelize. The way we do that, though, is through the display of that transformation that the gospel brings in our own lives. Of course, where it's in accord with proclaiming the gospel, but we don't just proclaim the gospel in a vacuum. We proclaim the gospel saying, look, this is what he's done in us. This is a powerful gospel. This grace that has come to us and resulted in salvation is powerful. It is transforming. It is to put us on a new path, and that path is to look like Christ himself. So the list that we see here in in the second part of verse 7 is in keeping with the purpose statement that we just looked at. And elders are to be exemplary in fulfilling this purpose. When we look at uh, Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, and in context, you think about the island of Crete and the debauchery that would have been... um, all over the place in that time period. And Paul is saying, oh no, this is, uh, you now have an opportunity to declare the power of the gospel as your lives are transformed. Elders, by the way, he's saying, are to be exemplary of this. They're to uh, lead in this example. Uh, so, and this, this list is in direct contradiction to, so it's, it's right in line with the purpose of um, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, but it's in contradiction to the characteristics of those who are without the Gospels. Well, um, verse, verse 12 explains this typical view from one of their own um, uh, prophets of what Cretans were like. So it's a contradiction to that, but also in a larger context, verses 10 through 16 describes these false teachers and elders are, and this list is uh, contrary to their uh, qualities. So elders are very important from this perspective. And so we want to look at these terms, and they are descriptive terms united with a negative, um, which indicates that these are to not be present in the elder. I'm going to explain that. Um, If you look at the ESV, it says he must not be... And then it starts to, to list this, uh, uh, to give this list. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy. But um, in the Greek, it actually is a continuation of the sentence which began in verse 7, where it says, for an overseer must be. And then literally it would read, it is necessary for the elder to be. And then he lists off five traits, but on each one of those, he puts a negative in front of it. So he is to be, it is necessary that an elder be not self-willed. 
So that's the first one. So that's why I said that that's the reason I told you I would give you this, that these are five internal restraints. He is to be something, but he puts it in the negative, and I think that's significant, and I'm going to hopefully uh, explain that as we go along. But this first one, the ESV says arrogant. He's not to be arrogant, or let me catch myself here. He must not be arrogant. Yeah, um, the New American Standard Version says self-willed. And I think that hits at it more accurately. And let me just unpack that a little bit. Uh, the word refers to being uh, self-absorbed or self-will, uh, having a self-willed focus that leads to arrogance. So again, it's not that the ESV is wrong. It's just I don't know that it gets the right nuance here. And this is going to happen uh, more than once as we go through this list. But Leadership can make one susceptible to this kind of temptation. It, because you're leading, because you're setting agendas and stuff, there's a temptation uh, to be self-willed, like it's all about the leader's agenda, which that's not, that's not the portrayal in the Scripture. Um, we're going to look at other passages that help us to understand that. But we know leadership can be a temptation to this. So I think the New American Standards translation, self-willed, he is to be not self-willed, is more accurate. Um, it seems that way at least. And um, again, I identified this as an internal restraint because of that negative um, little qualifier that's put on this adjective. He is to be not self-willed. And that highlights the fact that this is to be a restraint. Because we all know this is a tendency, therefore he must restrain himself. He must continue to practice restraint. Um, It is natural to be self-willed. You know that. Uh, No believer who's got his or her head screwed on straight would deny the fact that it is very natural to be self-willed, to be self-absorbed. And so uh, we will have to exercise restraint in order to not fulfill this natural tendency. And the elder is no exception. Um, One commentator writes, It implies a self-loving spirit which in seeking only to gratify itself is regardless of others. And that puts forth the... The reason that this is so important because an elder really is about a lot of others and uh, not the least of which is on the elder board. We have six elders and we uh, we meet to come to agreement for to make decisions for our church body. And it really only takes and we don't have this uh, kind of person, but it only takes one of these type people, a self-willed person on an elder board to grind gospel ministry to a halt. Now, Again, we don't have anyone like that. I'm just saying, um, it, uh, if that person is on an elder board, then obviously it would be a severe hindrance to uh, the health of the church because if we can't get it together, then how in the world can the church get it together? Um, but it is a restraint he must p- possess. He has to be able to harness himself for the good of others, for the glory of Christ and the good of others. Second, He must be not prone to anger. I want to look at just a couple of Proverbs where the Septuagint, remember Pastor Jeremy's been repeating this through the book of Hebrews. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this word is uh, 
translated not prone to anger, or quick-tempered, I think ESV says, is repeated a couple of times. Proverbs 22, verse 24 reads, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Uh, Proverbs 29, 22 gives another usage of this word. Where it says, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Make no mistake about it. You see that second half of that verse there. One given to anger causes much transgression. So Paul is laying out um, characteristics or qualifications here saying he must not be this person, or he must be not this person. I keep, keep myself in line with what I'm saying here. Uh, he can't be given to anger. That's destructive. It will cause much transgression. And so you've seen this. You've all seen someone given to anger and the, the destructive path that is left in the wake of their anger is uh, is very, very troubling. So he must be a man characterized by restraining that component. We all know what it's like to be frustrated and, and to get angry at something. Um but he must be able to restrain that because this type of man will not be peaceable. He will be contentious. Uh, he must exemplify Romans twelve eighteen, which says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He must have that kind of spirit about him. Third, he must be not given to wine, uh, drunken. Uh, this is more than just a general principle. It is in direct contrast to what would have been common in Crete. Remember that statement in verse 12? That lazy gluttons? That certainly goes along with someone who's given to alcohol because uh, both of those are, are typically uh, seen side by side. They're, they're not necessarily being industrious when they're like that, and they're certainly absorbing. They're gluttonous. They're wanting more and more and more. And so if the goal is to display the power of the gospel, remember what we looked at in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, if that's our goal, then this has to be modeled and necessitates that the man be marked by restraint from alcohol. It has to be a characteristic. Now, this is not addressing whether or not he can drink, but whether he um, is given to it, at least the way that the English is worded here in the ESV and other translations as well. Yet I will add, though, that there are some commentators who point out that this could hint at a stricter view with regard to alcohol, citing that it literally means one who sits alongside wine. And so with this view, um, not being addicted to it would actually only be a secondary meaning um, with regard to this. But whatever it is in, in the nuance of it, a man will have to exercise great restraint with regard to alcohol in order to be an elder. Otherwise, the damage from it can be quite grave. And we all know that's true. Um, alcohol is a touchy subject, and uh, particularly if an elder is not exercising really good restraint with it, there can be a lot of harm to that, uh, to the church and to the gospel witness at large. And so there needs to be restraint to it. Fourth, uh, not pugnacious. He must be not pugnacious. Now, 
The ESV translates this word as violent. Well, it can lead to that. There's no doubt about it. Violent would be a a pugnacious person. But I think because the New American Standard actually translates this with pugnacious, an older word. We don't use that very often. But I do think that perhaps that's a better uh, fit because you can be in this category and not necessarily be violent. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen elders, uh, people in a position of eldership who were not violent, but they were pugnacious. And it is a very disturbing and very harmful characteristic. Um, pugnacious. So it, it, it just if you were to look up a definition of pugnacious, inclined to quarrel or fight readily, quarrelsome, belligerent, combative. So it's difficult to strive toward unity when this kind of characteristic is present. And you could understand that. So again, there must be a measure of restraint. He has to be able to restrain um, that inward tendency to fight or to be combative. Um, you know, and right alongside this, it's uh, it takes humility. Humility is what's going to, if we're pursuing humility, that's the restraining mechanism. So I guess if you go all the way back to that first characteristic, must not be self-willed. That's the opposite of humility. And of course, the ESV translated that one as arrogant. So if we're pursuing humility, it will certainly restrain all of these areas. Um, but finally, number five, he must be not greedy for gain. It's the I want to have more syndrome. It's not simply saying, you know, I, I desire that or I, I prefer that or it, it would be nice to have that where we're holding something with an open hand. But this is the, the craving. I have to have more. Um, it, it's, it seems to be that most of my interaction with this has been in reference to money. And that's certainly the case. Uh, no doubt, but I think it can go beyond that uh, because I do. I think we can be greedy for gain and using ministry, a, a leadership position, to be um, exercising greed for gain in more ways than just money. But it certainly wouldn't want it to be money at all. Um, and that's not to say that Paul already talks about the fact that uh, a man who labors hard at preaching and teaching should be worthy of double honor. So it's not talking about adequately meeting the financial needs of an elder, but rather, uh, particularly vocational elder, but but it can't be that I'm going about this. I'm in ministry at this level, a leadership role, so that I can gain. And I'll just be honest, of course, there are temptations. Just like with all of us, any kind of leadership role, there can be a temptation for that, to have some kind of gain out of it. And again, this is a restraint. A man has to be able to restrain that all the way down and that's going back to humility as well so the second half of verse seven here contains a list of five areas that the elder must have restraint in his inner person in order to not succumb to disqualifying temptations an elder will um will be met with temptations in every one of these five categories and so there must be sufficient growth in his life so that he's going to be able to restrain himself and not give in to those temptations. Of course, we could put that positively, which Paul does do that in just a minute, is that he's going to have to be pursuing something in a direction that will um, actually bring in that restraint. So it reminds an elder that, uh, that he needs to be 
clued into the wisdom of Proverbs 25, 28, which says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man who can't harness these areas is very vulnerable, is what he's saying. So in this list of five vices, Paul has singled out ways in which one may be gripped and controlled by the different sins of pride. I'm quoting from uh, one commentator here. He says, um, pride, uh, I'm sorry, and let me reread that. In this list of five vices, Paul has singled out ways in which one may be gripped and controlled by the different sins of self, pride, anger, and desire for drink, dominance, or wealth. Being controlled by any one of these disqualifies a man from the position of overseer. So those are the five internal restraints of an elder. Now let's look at the the last section here, verses 8 through 9, with seven godly pursuits of an elder. And the first one is hospitable. And hospitable, it marks an open disposition and generosity toward others. You could say it is a love of hosting. Um, the first part of the word is actually two two forms of Greek words that are put here side by side and forming one word where it's a love of hosting. And so it's not necessarily entertaining, though some people may be gifted at that level and that's fine, but rather, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gifted necessarily at entertaining, um, but the, it rather refers to a warmly opening the home for fellowship, for care, for ministry, and for serving. And that doesn't take unique gifts, talents to do. It just takes a disposition and, a, and an inclination to want to be this way toward others. To open your home in a warm manner so that fellowship can occur, so you can care for others, minister to them, and, and just serve them in general. Um, so he must have this as a characteristic. Again, moving, we've moved into pursuits. He must pursue this. Now, I haven't always been where I am now. I'll be very honest with that. And I'm not necessarily now where I hope to be in the future, but I'm on this path, and I think all of our elders are as well, and we're all at varying degrees of this. I've been around elders whose home is just open like a revolving door. Um, and that's great. And, of course, we're all at different places in life that will uh, put some parameters on how much we can do that. But nonetheless, his heart must be disposed toward hospitality. Uh, it's, the op- it's the very opposite of that first negative trait that he must restrain himself from in the previous verse. That is, he, it cannot be a self-absorbed person because it's very difficult, and you know this, when we're self-absorbed, we're not ready and eager to invite others into our homes. Um, so the elder is to be a model of this. Therefore, the quality must be present in his life. Now, second, loving what is good. He must be hospitable. He must be loving what is good. If you look over at Philippians chapter 4, perhaps this is a familiar verse to you, verse 8, and really... You could think of this verse in regard to this qualification of an elder. He says, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So that really should 
Mark the elder. He should be pursuing those qualities, those things. He will genuinely desire everything that Paul listed in there. So in other words, there won't be components that go, yeah, I don't care for that too much. No, no, this is, this is in his heart. He loves virtue. He loves what is good. That's what Christ has done in his heart. He's changed him. You're not going to find this as uh, in the world as the A-type leader who's after these things. No, this is the work of Christ in a heart as he reshapes his outlook on things, directs him toward God and his word. Third, he must be sober-minded. Now, this is an interesting word, and the ESV translates it self-controlled, which I think would be more uh, fitting for the word translated just a little later, disciplined. I think that would be more fitting to translate that word uh, in that form. Uh, The New American Standard has sensible, and I think that gets better at the idea in this word. And it is true that the word speaks to self-control, but it's what exactly is Paul referring when he's talking about self-control? And, and it, it's, it, I think it's closer to understand this as self-control with regard to the mind. It's a word that's used uh, quite frequently in the New Testament. Peter uses this word and, and puts it beside other words that are um, not necessarily directed at the thinking level. Uh, but I think a better translation, and I've listed here, is sober-minded. So again, the New American Standard, I think, gets much closer with sensible. Um, And the idea is to think with soberness or moderation. So it is self-control, but it's self-control at the thinking level. Um, It could refer to control or moderation in one's thinking. Um, Whereas the word that's translated discipline is control or moderation of one's person. And so we'll look at that in just a minute. But he must have a mind that is... He's um, exercising restraint, uh, self-control in where he lets it go. Um, You can see the value of this at a lot of levels. Now, we're not just talking about his thought life in the sense of pure thoughts. Of course, that would apply. But decision-making, emotions, um, what-if stuff, this is an area that has to constantly be um, developed. Number four, upright. An elder must be upright. And the word refers to being just or right in regard to ethical behavior. He loves righteousness. First John says that. The one who is righteous practices righteousness. He must be marked as a man who is a righteous man. Again, it's not saying he's sinless. It's just that that's his direction. It's what he loves and is displayed in his life. Number five, he must be pure. The ESV translates this as holy. The New American Standard translates it as devout. But uh, I'm just going to quote here D. Edmund Hebert. It speaks of the individual who keeps himself free from that which stains him in the eyes of God. He must be a pure man. He must be a pure man. Do you see, um, beloved, as we go through this list, I mean, I look over the last 10 years, and there was a large movement among the much more younger evangelical um, church leaders to just really move away from the importance of this. Purity, uprightness, loving what is good, and maybe these other things, but those were high on the list. 
And the fallout from that has been so catastrophic. Um, I just think back to my own life in my 20s and my 30s. I was ready to conquer the world. But at this stage of my life, I'm 46, and I'm just asking God, help me be wise. Help me be wise. Because my generation was so ready to ditch generations, not just the older generation, but generations of the past in search of the novel and in the better and we got it all figured out now and of course that's all steeped in pride and yet so much trouble has come out of that but these lists cannot be improved upon this one in first peter first uh, timothy chapter three these are to be mark it down these are to be the pursuits of an elder. They have to be continually wanting these things and growing in them. Number six, self-controlled. Of course, that's my translation. Uh, Actually, the New American Standard translates it that way as well. The ESV translates this disciplined, uh, and that's fine, actually, disciplined. I was just setting it apart from the previous word that they translated self-controlled. But it refers to mastering or controlling, curbing, restraining oneself. It's the whole person in mind here, whereas the former word translated self-control, I believe, had to do with reining in and controlling the mind, the thinking. This one is the whole person. I believe that's the idea behind it. It's emphasizing control or moderation of the whole person. So this is the well-rounded character of an elder, both in the vices from which he restrains himself as well as the godly qualities he pursues. But there's one more pursuit that he must engage with great commitment. It occupies a whole verse for this one last pursuit. Number seven, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, I've added on the, my outline here by the apostles. I only added that to emphasize what I think he's getting at there by that uh, phrase, as taught. And we're going to look at this. But up until now, everything listed for an essential component of the elder has been a character quality, either to be shunned or to be displayed. So shun these five vices, display these character qualities, the six that have preceded this, uh, this one commitment or this pursuit. But this last pursuit is a non-negotiable that holds everything else together. As a matter of fact, if you were to think, I mean, how would we know verse 7? How would we know verse 8 except for the fact that it's written down uh, for us? But let's look at this a little further. Um, he's to be devoted to or he's to hold firm to the Word of God. I can't tell you how many people who have been in a pastoral role who have not done that with the Word of God, but did this with it. It is sure to slip out of your grasp if you're holding it like that, especially as you get busy slinging your hand around. It's just going to slip right out of your hand. But that's not what Paul says. He must hold firm to it. He must be devoted to it. There are plenty of, quote, scholars who have held the Word of God like that or simply just turned their hand upside down with it. There are plenty of seminary professors who have held the Word like this and they've lost it. That is not to be the characteristic of how an elder is to hold the Word of God. He is to hold it firm. 
Now, at the time of writing, there would not be multiple copies of the Scripture in every home like we have today. I mean, I'm blessed to no end. I have multiple copies in my office. I have multiple copies on my computer. I have copies on my phone. I have copies at my uh, in my house. We have copies. My kids lose their Bible. I say, all right, go get one of the paper ones. We have all kinds of copies of the Scripture. But that's not the way it would have been at this time. You had some scrolls as they were being written. They would be passed around. Paul would say, after you read this letter, send it on to, and he names another church at another um, at another location. And so they were not blessed to the degree that we are. And so he adds some things to this which are so important. He says, pay close attention to the message that was taught. And then I added, by the apostles. And I'm going to unpack why I added by the apostles. Not that you should insert that in the scriptures there. I'm just saying that's the understanding behind it. Um, So go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at some verses. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. And look at how Paul, in the midst of talking about sanctification, verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. There's a body of teaching that Paul and the other apostles refer to. That's this thing here. Jude says... um, Do defend the once for all faith delivered down to the saints. It's contained in a body of teaching. Paul says here, um, you became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. They had committed themselves to a standard of teaching. Look at Romans 16, verse 17, a more explicit reference to what I'm getting at here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Ah, there are some who come in and they end up dividing and they create obstacles. Notice, what's he say? Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Contrary to that body of teaching you were given. Avoid them, Paul says. Now, he's going to use that same type language in Titus chapter 2. But look at 2 John so flip on over to the right in the New Testament, Second John, verses 9 and 10, where the Apostle John says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, there is one body of teaching, does not have God. He's saying these are false teachers. They're not from us. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this apostolic teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now go to 1 Timothy 4, and I want you to see again, I, I just I can't emphasize this enough, and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul's telling Timothy, very similar situation, probably at the same time as Paul writing to to Titus. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, the things written in this letter, um, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Implication, if you don't, you're not a good servant of Christ Jesus, which um, which is holding forth a call to us as leadership. You put these things before the, um, the brothers. 
being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice that. The words of the faith. The faith. Not plural faiths. There's one faith, one Lord, one body, one spirit. Um, and that's all in reference of what he's talking about here. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Just a couple more. Second Thess- you know, when I was younger, that's all we did. We always had to turn to this. You didn't have all this computer printout stuff where you just quote the scriptures like we do. Now you'd all have to write them out by hand. Who would want to do that all the time? Second Timothy, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 15. And Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Now, this is not tradition for the sake of tradition. No, no. The traditions that you were taught by us. Who the us? Paul and his ministry companions. That's the apostolic testimony going on there. That you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. There's a body of truth that was handed under the hands, given under the hands of the apostles. And then one more place, and this is so key, because this actually has the connection to us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he tells Timothy, he's at the very end of his life, he's about to go off the scene. The apostolic era is coming to an end. I mean, John's going to live past him for quite some time, which, by the way, John tells us when that teaching is all over with at the end of Revelation. He says anyone who adds to this book, this prophecy, the book of Revelation, let him have all the curses. God will bring those on him. Or if he takes away from it, which I believe is a clear indicator at the close of the canon when the last apostolic testimony, John himself, was going off the scene, it was over. There was no more revelation to be given to the church. There, I made that piece stated. Second Timothy 2 2, and what you have heard from me, this body, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Hand this this treasure chest off, this tradition, this teaching. Who will be able to teach others also? Now that's where we are today. I say that because Paul handed it off to Timothy and the baton kept rolling and it has rolled. And now we have the, of course, like I said, you have these individual scrolls being passed around and at some point those began to be put into one grouping. Um, They were called codices. I think it was the third century when they started to put together into one book all of these individual books together. Um, That doesn't mean they determined they are only affirming what was already true and that these were the scriptures. This is the teaching. So this highlights, and here's the connection to us today as elders. You see, holding firmly to this trustworthy word, it highlights the importance of being devoted to understanding the Bible through careful exegesis. I know it's a big word there. Taking out of the text with a desire to be faithful to the original intent of the author. Because the only way we're guaranteed that we are holding to the trustworthy word as taught is if it's actually what they taught. Because there are groups that claim to be upholding the scriptures, claim to be all committed to the Bible, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, false teachers in Crete, who claim that, but it's not that as taught. 
And so there's a process. Pastor Jeremy goes through this every week before he brings the word uh, to us on Sunday mornings where he's in, in tedious study, wrestling with the text um, with a firm conviction. I'll tell you this, Pastor Jeremy has a, a firm conviction that this is God's holy word. I'm not wanting to hold um, fast and loose with it. Oh no, I want to have my heart grounded with this firm conviction to be careful. What is it that's being communicated here? And that's what he brings to us each week. Church history is replete with examples of the church seeking to do what I just described. Be faithful to the text, be careful to understand it, and then measuring up new crop-up teachings in relationship to that and holding them accountable to it and expunging them. And so you can find this in... There are books um, that catalog the history of heresy. (laughs) Quite a few, actually. And so if you wanted to see that, you could look into that. But that effort is what Paul described in Romans 16, 17 when he says, watch out. For these people, these divisive people who come up with stuff contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Brothers and sisters, we joyfully take this seriously for several reasons that we're going to look at, a couple of reasons. But before we do that, I want to read you one quote from D. Edmund Hebert about this type of person. He must have this quality that he is pursuing a firm hold on the scriptures. That is, you can expect there's going to be conviction with how he holds the Bible. There are plenty of people in churches and they hold up the Bible, but they again hold it up loosely. No, what Paul has in mind here is someone who has this at the core of his being. There's a reason that Pastor Jeremy always says before the public reading of scripture, this, and remember, this is the word of the living God, or this, these are the very words of God, or something to that effect, because he's stating forward what he holds to with regard to that, which means he's in line of this qualification. But let me read you this quote. He must be true to the faith of the faith of the church. He must continue to cling to the faithful word and that in in the face of opposition and temptation to abandon it. He must not be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4.14 He must be characterized by doctrinal stability. He clings to the faithful word because he knows it to be trustworthy and dependable, not unreliable and treacherous like the spurious teachings of the false teachers. This word is more precisely defined as being according to the teaching. It is in full agreement with the teaching given by the apostles. The statement presupposes the existence of a body of Christian teaching which in substance, if not in form already, was already fixed to this word, reliable and worthy of utmost confidence. He must resolutely cling if he is to fulfill his function. Beloved, that's exactly where we are as your elders. And that's exactly where anyone must be if they're to become an elder at Cow Creek Community Church.
And then Paul gives two reasons. Uh, first of all, um, he gives two reasons that the elder must be deeply committed to the trustworthy word as taught. First of all, it's in the, in the form of a positive uh, purpose that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh, healthy doctrine, that, which implies there is doctrine or there is teaching that is unhealthy, that is not profitable, and it will produce harmful results in God's people. Oh yes, there is. Uh, again, church history is just replete with examples of this. We've seen it in our own lifetime. We've seen it in our own church. Um, I've seen this again and again. But the word here for sound is an important word. In Luke 5.31, it is used of a well or a healthy person. Remember, uh, the, um, the well, they are in no need of a physician, Jesus said. I came here for those who are sick. So, um, a healthy person, that's just a normal everyday context. Hey, you're healthy, you're well, you don't need a doctor, a physician. But that's the, it's, it's healthy doctrine. Um, in Titus 1.13 and in Titus 2.2, Paul has in mind the goal that believers are to have a healthy faith as opposed to one that is erring. So there's a healthy faith and then there's a, an erring faith, one that is going to bring harmful results. In 1 Timothy 1.10, 1 Timothy 6.3, 2 Timothy 1.13, in Titus Chapter 2, verse word 1, it refers to the sound words of Christ and the doctrine that is according to godliness. Put those two together. The sound, it's everything in, in, um, in coordination with the teaching of Christ. So in other words, everything that came later through the apostles, that's why P, uh, Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 20, says, built on the, um, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone that's the foundation. You can't build on it any other way. That's it. Um, but in those texts I just read off to you, he adds to it those which accord with godliness. So sound teaching is going to have, not only is it going to be rooted in that central core body of truth given through, uh, finally through all the apostles at the um, at the end, at the movement of the Spirit, where John, in John 16, Jesus, he foretold that that's exactly what would happen. He will lead you into all truth. The rest of the Scripture would come through the apostolic testimony. But this is in keeping with godliness. So if it, if it deters from that, and that's not the goal of it, uh, that too is not healthy teaching, sound teaching. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 3, this sound teaching is prophesied that it would be rejected. There's coming a day they won't want to hear the sound teaching, but rather they will accumulate, amass for themselves teachers in accord to their own passions to scratch their ears. That's what will happen. And that's where we are today with just so much even in, in the broader evangelical church, so many teachers that have been piled up and congregations gathered not to sit under the Word of God saying, What does He say? Oh, give me from the book just as it is. Let me sit under it and align my life to it. No, they're crying out more and more, Please tell me what I want to hear. Well, there's nothing supernatural about that. So being devoted to the trustworthy word as taught ensures 
An elder who is devoted in this manner ensures that he will be able to instruct in this sound doctrine which is so important for believers. Believers cannot grow in maturity without sound doctrine. You say, I don't like doctrine. Well, doctrine just means teaching. If you don't like good teaching, you're not in line with the apostles. Let's just say that you've put yourself in a place that's not healthy at all. There may be other things we could talk about to help you come to a different conclusion than that. Or um, you're just adamantly opposed to the things of God. But to say that kind of comment, you are not aligning yourself with Jesus or the apostles. So you figure that out if that happens to be you. I don't, I don't think anyone in Cow Creek is in that position. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there in case someone is listening. Negatively, though, the second reason, um, first of all, to uh, that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also to refute error. Of course, here's on the other side of that, and he's going to launch into this. The reason this is so important. Titus, you make sure that you um, affirm and appoint elders because they're going to have to hold to this, which is critical to confronting the doctrinal error in verses 10 through 16 following. So refuting error is the negative response from holding fast to the word. Instruction is for building up the saints. Reproof is for dismantling the false teaching. Because typically it comes in some kind of cohesive, pretty sophisticated um, unit that draws the disciples away, that draws the sheep away. Um, Now, it is possible that the result of refuting error will bring about restoration, if it's a believer who slipped into teaching this, or bring about true repentance from a false teacher. That's possible, but protection for the flock has to be front and center in view when thinking about this negative aspect. Refuting error is to protect the flock. Again, uh, obviously there takes wisdom to understand how is something being taught. Um, maybe someone is confused, and, and so that would be a shepherding role. But if someone is really coming in and they're wanting to draw away the sheep, with false teaching, that has to be stopped. And Paul says so here in chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Then he says in chapter 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, and again, we can put that in there with Romans 16, 17, uh, in the sense this is through false teaching, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. So Paul had uh, not the softest words for false teaching because it's, it can be so destructive to the rest of the flock. And that's ultimately what he has in mind there. He's trying to protect the, the flock. He doesn't want someone coming in and shipwrecking their faith. And so again, there needs to be wisdom at what level is a false teaching. But nonetheless, that's part of the the qualification of an elder. You must be holding fast to the faithful, trustworthy word as taught so that build up the sheep, keep the false teaching away. So uh, false teaching will be malnourishing or poisonous to the sheep. That's the way we have to view this. At best, it will be malnourishing. That's That's not the good food. At worst, it's poisonous. I suppose anytime you bring false teaching, it's going to be poisonous, uh, but some of it is of, of greater consequence. 
Um, and it also will steer the sheep away from the healthy doctrine, which alone will feed them. That's why it's important to, to keep um, an eye toward this, because once you start chewing on old thorny food, um, it, you know, you're thinking that's food when you really need to be over here with the healthy, the good doctrine which will feed and nourish sheep to strength and maturity. Again, you cannot grow to maturity without sound doctrine. So these are the qualifications of an elder. And if anyone has these qualities and is committed to be pursuing them, he should be viewed as a candidate that the Spirit of God is raising up for this very important role in the local church. And so these are the type of men that Titus was to identify and appoint to this leadership role. And these are the type of men that we at Cow Creek Community Church are committed also to identifying. And yes, we play a role in helping their development along, but we're committed to this so that we can also appoint them to the office of elder. Now, we're done with this section, and I hope that that's been clear. Again, there's another section in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, where Paul lays out the qualifications for an elder. But I just want to add a statement in regard to these qualifications. They don't represent a special category of believers, like they've just gained, uh, gained a better standing with God, or they've got the secret track to really growing so that they can meet these qualifications. Um, or There's nothing in them that predisposes them, like they're unique and you're not. Uh, that's not it at all, that, that predisposes them to growth. No, growth comes by application of the grace of God to one's life. That's it. There's no secret to it. It's application of the grace of God to our lives. It's the same for any of us. We're all in the same um, growth track. That is, there's no special category. No, we all have one track to be on. It's by the power of the Spirit. Growth doesn't come apart from the Spirit. The flesh can't produce fruit. No, that must come through the Spirit. It is by the means that the Spirit has designed to cause growth. So we continually try to explain these means, emphasize these normal means that God uses, that the Spirit has already ordained and designed that grow us. It's by those same means, which is very encouraging to all of us. I used to think, I know when I was a young man, looking up at the elders at Grace Community Church and thinking, wow, you know, they're just such... But no, they went down the same path that all of us have to go down. Um, And it is fleshed out, this growth is fleshed out in prayerful dependence upon God and by faithful application of His Word in the context of a local church. That's it. Prayerful dependence upon God, application of His Word in the context of a local church. That We're all in the same track to be growing. And again, these characteristics should be uh, the aspects that we all want to be um, possessing. I would think that every single one of you would want to have those characteristics. Those You would want to be restraining yourself from those negative things. You would want to be adding to yourself those positive characteristics. You want to be holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Absolutely. You want to be just like the Bereans in uh, Acts chapter 17 who were more noble than those at uh, Thessalonica. 
and uh, then the Jews there, and they were just looking through, searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, because they had that conviction. You want to be like the Thessalonian believers who receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the very word of God. You want to be committed to that. And yet, these men in this... um, that are being identified here have grown in that normal grace of God to such an extent that they are now ready to be examples to the flock and to call others to follow their example. That's what's, that's what's being emphasized here. They've grown in this normal path of grace to such an extent that they're now ready to be an example to the rest of the flock and they're ready to call others to follow our example. If you look over at 1 Peter 5, and we'll be done here, but 1 Peter 5, we see this, what I just described, that exemplary model explained in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. Peter puts himself in the same place, and he's an apostle. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders are those who are also purposeful to continue growing in these qualifications until they see Jesus, the chief shepherd. So as I said at the start of this, uh, this is to be present tense. This is who to be who they are, but not with the guarantee that it will always be that way if we don't maintain the pursuit of these. And it is to be with the understanding that present tense, this is my pursuit. I want to always be growing in these. That's what our elders want. And there may be reason if these areas begin to fall short in a man's life that he needs to step back uh, so that he can shore up those areas of his life. There may be reason that if these uh, areas have become totally absent, that he is at that point disqualified from the, well, that is certainly the case, from the office of elders. So be praying for your elders. We love you. Uh, We love our Lord, but we are all vulnerable men. And so be praying for us. And be praying for the new elders that God will be raising up. Maybe one of your sons will someday be an elder. Be praying and be a part of nurturing this. Okay, till next time, God bless.